Our reading and preaching of God's Word today is continuing our new series in Daniel. We'll be looking at Daniel 1, verses 8 through 21. Would you please stand out of reverence for God's Word, if you can? Again, that's Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through the end of the chapter. Please give careful attention to the reading of God's Word. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see." So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than them all, the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such. You may be seated. Do you trust that the Lord will provide for you, even in the most difficult situations and amid the most severe suffering? As I ask you this question, where do you find yourself and where do you find the measure of your faith? Perhaps you are here in what feels like some of the most difficult situations that you've ever gone through in your life, or perhaps the most severe suffering you've ever faced, and you find yourself asking, where is the Lord? Can I trust him? Will he provide? Why am I going through this? Or perhaps you're here and you're in a season of life where things are going pretty well and you're not experiencing a significant amount of suffering. But are you looking to the Lord to provide for you or are you trusting in yourself or relying on others for your provision and satisfaction? In thinking about having faith in the Lord and looking to Him for provision, my mind, perhaps yours too, goes to Father Abraham. Abraham, who waited years and years for that promised 
son. And when he had got that son, the Lord asked him to sacrifice the son of the promise. Recall Abraham's famous words as he was going to carry this out, as his son had asked him, where is the lamb for a sacrifice? And what does Father Abraham say? God himself will provide the lamb for a whole burnt offering, my son. As the narrative goes on, as we recall, the angel of the Lord stays Abraham's hand, and he indeed does provide a ram caught in the thicket for a sacrifice. But this, we can't downplay, must have been a most severe trial for Abraham. This must have been one of the most difficult things that he would ever have to face. Yet he trusted in the Lord, and he looked to him for provision. In a similar manner, in our text today, Daniel and his friends are facing what must have been the most difficult situation that they had ever faced in their young teenage years. Their homeland was besieged by a foreign enemy. They were stolen away as property to serve in the courts of the conquering king. They were subjected to a program of indoctrination, seeking to change their mindset from Judean royalty to Babylonian servants. The first seven verses of Daniel 1 set us up with such questions as, will God's people be faithful in exile? And what does that even look like? Now the rest of this chapter, and really of the next six chapters, will show us what this looks like. What we'll see today is that faithfulness to God is expressed by faith in God that he will provide a conviction which is based on the provision which he has made for us in his Son. To come to this conclusion, we're going to look at two simple headings. First, we'll look at the testing of the Lord, verses 8 through 16, and then we'll look at the triumph of the Lord, verses 17 through 21. But let's look at that first point, the testing of the Lord. Last week, we looked at the first seven verses of Daniel in which we are told about how Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, laid siege to Jerusalem, and from their nobility he took captives to serve in his court. The task of selecting these uh, young men came to Ashpenaz, the king's chief official. He had the task of selecting these young men and overseeing their three-year-long training, which was to be given to them, so that they could serve in the courts of the king. As we talked about, these young men were to be trained in all wisdom and knowledge, and all the languages and literature of the Chaldeans. Moreover, they were to be fed from the king's table and given the wine that the king himself drank from his own cellars. While this sounds like nice treatment, yet as we noted last week, that all of these things were meant to serve one purpose, and that was reprogramming these Jewish men, of indoctrinating them in the way of Babylon, in the way of the world. That is what these were intended to do. So all of this sets up the narrative, which begins in verse 8, saying, But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Now, you can't see it clearly in our English translation, but the author here is actually doing something rather clever. In verse 7, he said that the chief official gave Daniel and his friends new names, and he explains that he called him, Daniel, 
The same Hebrew word is being used here, which is translated as gave and called. It's sim. When he comes to verse 8, the author uses the same Hebrew verb again, which is translated as Daniel resolved. To reflect this in English, we might better translate it roughly like this. The chief official placed names upon them. On Daniel, he placed the name Balthashazar. But Daniel placed it upon his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Uh, Commentator Ralph Davis explains it really well. The overseer of Babylonian assimilation clips along in his normal fashion, imposing his Babylonian agenda on these captives. He sets names for them, sets a name for Daniel. But Daniel has his own setting that he has done. He has set it on his heart that he will not defile himself with the king's food allotment. In other words, whereas the Babylonians were setting all matters in place to indoctrinate Daniel and his friends, Daniel sets it upon his heart that he will resist this reprogramming of Babylon. But notice how Daniel carries out his resistance, not in anger and pride, but with composure and respect. Verse 8 says, Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Sandwiched between Daniel's request and the official's response, we get that wonderful statement in verse 9, that God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Daniel is acting in accordance with his conviction in a spirit of calmness, understanding his responsibility and firm in his resolve. And along with this, the Lord is going before him and is showering his grace upon this young man in the court of the conquering king. The word translated as favor is that word that perhaps you've heard, hesed, which throughout scripture is used to describe God's steadfast love or his covenantal love which he has for his people. The word translated as compassion refers to the deepest seat of the emotions. It's similar to the Greek splachna that we talked about in Philemon. And it is used to describe God's compassion and his mercy for his people in their troubles throughout scripture. These two terms, in other words, are loaded with covenantal Theology. This is describing the love and the mercy which God has for his people. And he, in this passage, gives to Daniel this kind of grace and compassion before the eyes of this high-ranking Babylonian official. So we see his response in verse 10. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Notice that he does not flat out reject Daniel's request. Rather, by the Lord's grace and mercy, it seems that this official has some sympathy with Daniel and perhaps even a respect for his religious convictions in light of his present condition. But even so, he is concerned that Daniel's physical appearance will worsen and that he will be less healthy than the other young men. And he knows that if this happens, 
as the one who has the assignment of this job of overseeing this program, he knows that it's really his neck on the line or his head on the line. That could refer to demotion reprimanding or maybe more literally to capital punishment and losing his head. That certainly fits with the character of Nebuchadnezzar as we will see. He seems, though, to indicate that if there was a way for Daniel to have his request and he not get in trouble for it, then he would be glad. And in this way, he almost invites Daniel to find an alternative route. In any case, that's how Daniel interprets the request. And he goes to the next level, lower level of authority, uh, to the man that the chief official had set over Daniel and his friends in particular. So in verses 12 through 13, Daniel makes a proposal to the steward. He says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. Here Daniel is proposing a test to the steward. Had it failed, it would have minimal consequences. Ten days on a particular diet is enough to see some change, but not enough to do irreparable damage. It was a test that had not many consequences uh, if it went wrong. Notice that he says ten days. Uh, In Scripture, ten is a nice whole number, and it is used along with seven to speak to kind of perfection, completion. Uh, It's interesting to note that this ten days of testing in the book of Revelation, when uh, the Lord Jesus is speaking to the church of Smyrna, he calls on them to be faithful as they go through ten days of tribulation. The test is simple. Allow Daniel and his friends to eat an alternative diet to the other trainees, and in ten days, who fares better? And to this request, this fairly reasonable request, the steward agrees to the terms. We're now at a point, though, to ask, why did Daniel and his friends refuse the food of the king's table? Why did they see it that it would be defiling to them? What was it about it? As you can imagine, there's been many suggestions on this. Many think that Daniel is seeking to be obedient to God's law, namely his ceremonial law, as you see in Leviticus 11, which speaks about the kinds of clean and unclean animals which the people of Israel could eat. But in that case, why does Daniel also reject the wine, which the law says nothing against in itself? Others have suggested that Daniel rejected the food and drink of the king because they would have been first offered to uh, idol the gods of Babylon and then served at the king's table. That may be the case, but there were also grain or vegetable type offerings, so there's still risk there if you're getting this food from the king. Still others suggest that accepting the king's food and drink would be showing a reliance on the king and not on the Lord, but even so, the vegetables and the water would be coming from the supplies of the king. I think the best solution is what we talked about last week and started with today. Daniel is resisting the indoctrination program of the Babylonians. He understands well the allure of the world and the allure of the king's table. 
And he knows that this is a pivotal point for him of whether he is going to assimilate to this culture or not. He knows the temptation which the king's banquet brings. At this point, Daniel and his friends do not have much power over their lives. But they do have this. Rather than allowing themselves to be enticed by the delicacies of the king's court and forget their God, they resolve to rely on the Lord's grace and provision, not on Nebuchadnezzar and his promises. Verses 15 through 16 give us the result of this test. After ten days on this diet of vegetables and water, Daniel and his friends looked better in appearance and were fatter in flesh than the other young men who ate of the king's table. So the steward, seeing the results, is happy to keep on going with this program, and he might have himself taken Daniel's portion of the king's table and wine. It could have been a good um, benefit for him. We should note that the word translated as vegetables means more like things which are grown from a seed, which should, could have included things like vegetables, yes, but also grain and even bread. Um, that might be good news to you if you want to go on the Daniel diet. You can have bread. Further, as much as I like it, fatter of flesh does not necessarily mean being overweight, but it can just refer to in that culture where the danger, in our culture, the danger is more being overweight to death. But in that culture, it was being starved to death. So when you use this term of fatter of flesh, it's a way of saying that they were healthier than all the other young men. In any case, this is the testing of the Lord, which in this context has a twofold meaning. On the one hand, as we've talked about in this situation of suffering, Daniel and his companions are being tested. Will they be faithful in exile? In this text, they show their resistance to temptation and assimilation and their reliance on the Lord and his provision. But on the other hand, The Lord, in a sense, is being tested. Can he provide for his people in a foreign enemy land? In this text, we see the Lord showering his steadfast love and mercy on his servant, giving him favor in the eyes of his captor. And we also see the Lord supernaturally supplying for his people. Understand that The text is not implying that the diet itself was a healthier diet that would have made them better in appearance. The whole point of the text is that Daniel knows that this would not be a better diet. The chief official knows this would not be a better diet. But Daniel is relying on the Lord to supernaturally provide for his people. Will the Lord supply his people with the provisions they need in a hostile land? This text also speaks to us in our context, even as it spoke to the Israelites who were going through this terrible situation, showing how God is still with his people in exile. This text also speaks to us. As we talked about last week, we too are in Babylonian captivity, living as strangers and pilgrims in this world of sin and misery. As such, we too need to resist the temptations of the world the flesh, and the devil. In Daniel's day and in his situation, faith in the Lord was expressed through rejecting the enticements of the world and relying on the Lord's provision for his life 
and godliness. For him, it looked like rejecting the king's table. But what does it look like for us? What is your particular weakness? What enticement is particularly alluring to you, which the world puts forth? Understand, we must constantly resolve, like Daniel, to reject what the world is offering us. We must trust in the Lord to provide for us and to bless us even in our exile. It is only through Jesus Christ and by faith that we overcome the world and the flesh and the devil, which brings us to our next and last point. We've just looked at the testing of the Lord. Now let us consider the triumph of the Lord. Daniel has just described the testing of the Lord in exile wherein his and his friend's faith has been tried, and wherein the faithfulness of the Lord was put to test. Yet the Lord remained faithful, and he sustained the faith of his people. In their exile against the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, the Lord gave his covenantal love to his people, and he showed them mercy, even in the face of their enemies. Now Daniel gives us somewhat of a summary of the Lord's grace to them saying in verse 17, As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Earlier we were told that Nebuchadnezzar commanded that the the Jewish captives would be trained and educated in all learning, skill, literature, and wisdom of the Chaldeans. But now we're told that the Lord himself gifted these four friends with these very things. The Lord is the one who gives them all that they need. Moreover, we're told that he gave Daniel understanding in all visions and dreams. This was a gift prized among the Babylonians and other kingdoms at this time. Perhaps you recall in your mind another time that God's servant is in a king's court, a foreign king's court, and he is gifted in dreams and visions. Of course, that's referring to Joseph in Egypt. Uh, Daniel here is recalling our minds to that, and in doing that, it's reminding us of the faithfulness of the Lord God and what he brought about even with the Exodus, so this can look forward to what the Lord will do. In verses 18 through 19, we are given the verdict of Nebuchadnezzar's personal testing of all these young men after three years of training. He, gave, he himself gave an oral examination of these people and how among them were told none, none were found who matched Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Because of this, we are told that he chose them to stand in his presence and be his counselors. And verse 20 states that in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. They didn't just surpass their fellow classmates and trainees. No, what he's saying is that they surpassed the best of the best counselors in Babylon, all that they had. Uh, Magicians and enchanters uh, held powerful positions in pagan courts, seen to be wise and knowing. Again, think of Pharaoh's court where Moses had to interact and go against the magicians and enchanters of Egypt. These represented positions 
representing the best of best of what Babylon had to offer. Yet through the Lord's blessing, Daniel and his friends, somewhat 19 at this point, they surpass all of the wise men of this land because the Lord, his grace is upon them. Finally, we get to that unassuming but glorious conclusion in verse 21. It states this, And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This isn't just a mere historical note. The there that Daniel was at was in the court and as a counselor to the Babylonian king. In chapter 10, we'll actually learn that Daniel lived and served until at least the third year of Cyrus's reign. But that's not the point here. The reason why he emphasizes the first year of Cyrus's reign is because that is the year that the Babylonian kingdom fell to Cyrus, the king of Persia. What this verse emphasizes is that Daniel, a poor Judean captive of Babylon, excelled in the courts of Babylon and outlasted the Neo-Babylonian kingdom. When they fell, this poor Judean captive still remained by God's grace. This passage speaks a powerful message to the Judean church of Daniel's day and to the church of our day and indeed all ages. Nebuchadnezzar laid siege to Jerusalem and eventually toppled it, taking it taking people to his kingdom, and even taking treasures from the temple and bringing them to the temple of his God. From all outward appearances, anyone looking at this situation would think that the Babylonian king and the Babylonian gods had conquered and that they succeeded and they gained the victory. Yet Daniel shows us that the Lord God himself sent Babylon as his instrument of discipline against his own people for their sin and their rejection of him. And he even gave his own vessels of his temple and allowed them to be taken into the treasuries of Babylon. Again, that was because of the sin of the king of Judah, who showed the Babylonians his own treasures. The Lord is directly punishing. He is directing history. He is sovereign over all of this. And in the court of Babylon, in the domain of Marduk, their god, the Lord triumphs. He gives forth his grace and causes his people to thrive in Babylon and to outlast the Babylonian kingdom. Our gracious Lord is still about this work today, even as we traverse the streets of Babylon, as we inhabit this world in the courts of the kings, our Lord reigns and he is with us. As a young lad, not much older than Daniel and his friends, I was an unlikely candidate to go to college, let alone college in an area I had never been to. Uh, But one day I just decided to apply, and the next thing I knew, I was headed to Florida, and I had never been there. I would never been to the school at all. By God's grace, he has been pleased to continue to further that and to use me in some small measure for his kingdom, but this, this isn't about me. My dad had read and preached the book of Daniel. And he, one prayer that he would always remind me of, he would say that then I'm praying that the Lord would give you grace in the eyes of those with whom you have to do. 
As me and Pastor Fick pray for each and every one of you as we go over the rules, I pray this prayer for you, and particularly for our young men and women who are entering college or who are entering a workforce, that the Lord would go before you, that he would give you grace and favor before the eyes with those with whom you have to do. Whoever you are, whatever your circumstances, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, God goes before you and his grace surrounds you. He will give you courage and conquest and triumph over trials. We began today by asking, do you trust that the Lord will provide for you, even in the most difficult situations and sufferings? Now we can ask, what gives us confidence that the Lord will provide for his people? Well, we get the book of Daniel, which shows us in the courts of Babylon, the best of Judea are being subjected to the reprogramming of the Babylonians, seeking to entice them to the world and the flesh and a worldly lifestyle. Yet in their defeat, God brings victory. The Lord blesses his people and enables them to triumph over the best of Babylon's wise men and to outlast the kingdom of Babylon itself. But while the story of Daniel and his friends can give us comfort, they in themselves do not give us ultimate consolations. Friends, this comes only through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the history of Israel only pointed to. When did the victory of God's enemies and his people ever look greater than when our Lord Jesus Christ hung dying on a cross? Yet in this weakness was shown strength, By this wisdom was shown the folly of the world. It is through his seeming defeat that Jesus Christ brings about ultimate victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. When would Satan and the world have been more happy that they could accomplish their purpose of hanging this Messiah on the cross? But through that, it was the means that the Lord appointed to bring redemption to us. It is through his seeming defeat that Jesus brings ultimate victory. So Paul can write in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, And you who were dead in your trespasses in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As you see your own weakness, look to the strength of the Lord. As you feel your own foolishness, take comfort in the wisdom of the cross, which to the world is folly, but to us is salvation. As you face the supposed conquests and triumphs of the world over you, Look to the triumph of the cross and take comfort in that. And as you're traversing the streets of Babylon, as you're living in this world, know that you have the same God who showers his grace upon you. He goes before you in his grace and he tells us, if any of you lack wisdom, ask it of God. And the main wisdom that he gives us is the knowledge and wisdom that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ who to us has become salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a good and gracious 
God. You do not chide forever, but you show mercy and you discipline us for our good. Lord, you go before us and you shower upon your grace. I pray, Lord, for this congregation, for all those here, that you would give them grace and favor in the eyes with those with whom they have to do. But Lord, I pray that what you would do is to cause our eyes to be cast to heaven, that we would look to Christ and our citizenship in heaven, that we would be so heavenly minded that we would be of some earthly good. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to bear witness and testimony to your grace. We thank you for uh, the strength which comes through weakness, the, the wisdom which seems like folly. Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who took our record of debt, who took our record of sins, and nailed them to the cross, and that through these means, he has triumphed all over all his and our enemies. Uh, Lord Jesus Christ, we are looking to you. The world sees you as a dead, false Savior, but Lord, we know that you are alive and that you reign on high and that you are overseeing all the affairs of men and that you are watching over your people. Help us to take comfort in this and help us to love you and serve you more and more. It is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. What the Lord gives to us is a picture to the world of what seems like the greatest defeat of our Savior. But he gives it to us as the sign of his most glorious victory, the sign of the promise that he will receive us into his kingdom and that even now he gives us to eat of his table. It represents his body, which was broken, and his blood, which was poured out. From the world's perspective... Uh, Like in our passage today, Daniel and his friends were going to get in a worse condition from that diet. And they should be eating from the world's delicacies and from the king's table. In the same way, the world looks at this as a foolish ritual, which we do. But we know that this is how the Lord supernaturally feeds us. This is how he communes with us and how he nourishes us and strengthens us and makes us healthier than all those who eat of the world's table. This is the king's table, the King Jesus Christ, who was risen and reigns on high. This is a table for those who have bowed the knee to that king, those who are repenting of their sins, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who, in accordance with his commands, have joined a church, have been baptized, and are actively seeking to live for him. If these things don't describe you, Let these elements pass, because it would be for your worst condition. But do not let the Lord Jesus Christ pass. The King of heaven and earth, even through this, is calling you to faith and repentance. So I would say let them pass, but receive Christ by faith. And for those of us who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, let us eat now of the King's finest table. Uh, Let us pray that he would bless these ordinary means of bread and wine to our supernatural good. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, 
the world, the flesh, and the devil are strong, and they seek to allure us to their enticements. How thankful we are that you give us this heavenly banquet. We pray, Lord, that you would use this to work faith in our hearts. We pray that you would bless uh, these ordinary elements of bread and wine to our spiritual good. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would strengthen us as we are in exile and that we would be faithful and trusting in your faithful provision. Uh, We ask that you would just bless this time to our spiritual good. It's in your name we pray. Amen.